Hello, and welcome to the Creative Arts Business, the show all about the business of working in the arts and entertainment industry in the San Fernando Valley. The Creative Arts Business is a show where you can't have the show without the business. The time is 11, and I am your host, Brian Metcalf. My guest host today is Rolf Kneski. He works as a writer and director, and he has been doing films such as Nightmare Man, Blonde and Blonder, and has a new film out called The Black Room. Rolf, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, tell us, when did you want to become a filmmaker? I, pretty early. I'm from New York originally, and uh, around the age of three and a half, four, my father introduced me to Abbott and Costello movies, which played like every Sunday at 11.30 on Channel 11, and um, fell in love with Abbott and Costello, started writing stories before I could even write. I would translate stories to babysitters, and um, got into it pretty fast. Um, Got a video camera when I was 13, and started uh, taking some uh, actually acting and screenwriting courses when I was 14 in New York at HB Studios. So I was pretty uh, tunnel vision set on uh, on doing that when I uh, was ready for college. Um, I wanted to go, you know, my parents wanted me to go to a college that had a film program. I wanted to go to a film program that had a college. And <laughs> I was pretty much uh, set there and wound up going to Hampshire College for uh, a couple of years before I uh, kind of left to uh, just take it on the road because I was able to, luckily with uh, support of my uh, friends and, and family, uh, make my first feature when I was 20 years old called There's Nothing Out There. While I was still in college, I took a semester off. So your parents were extremely supportive of, of you wanting to go into the filmmaking business y- then? Yes, yes. I was an only child, so they. Uh, my father was a film editor, um, he, a lot of documentaries in New York. He ran his own post-production company called Valken Films. My mother was an actress and um, dancer on Broadway when I was very, very young and then moved into modeling and then eventually jewelry business. But luckily, yes, I had two parents that were supportive of the, the creative arts. And so did you get to watch them a lot of times doing the work that they were doing? Yes. My father, I went down to his, uh, he was in Manhattan. Um, he had a company down there on Broadway and uh, he would, uh, they, they were working, this is back with the Steenbecks before, you know, Avids and, and digital came in. So I remember um, he had a print of uh, Dumbo, and uh, they always sort of put that up, and I was able to watch that movie uh, a lot. But um, I would see what they were doing. He did a lot of documentaries, National Geographic Explorers and stuff like that, which I wasn't as interested in as the narrative stuff. And there was one infamous movie that he was cutting when I was very young, which um, has turned into kind of a cult movie called Bloodsucking Freaks that some people may know. And that was the only time he wouldn't let me in the editing room, which uh, <laughs> years later when I discovered the film when I was in uh, high school um, and I saw his name on the screen, I was like, oh, this is the movie. And uh, yeah, it's quite a memorable <laughs> film. So do you think that him making that movie at all trans- made you want to go into horror or what do you think about the whole thing? No, I... I, I well, horror films, well, I, one of the big inspirations absolutely was having a stomach Frankenstein and the, the combination of comedy and horror I always found uh, very intriguing. And I, it, it, when I was like five years old, it, I was always scared in the beginning of having a stomach Frankenstein when the Lon Chaney has the transformation into the, into the werewolf. But once I got to the point where Costello says, get your doggy off the phone, you know, he's on the telephone, I laughed and I sort of really loved that combination. But horror films really scared me when I was growing up. I had nightmares and the one that really made a huge impact was the 1979 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I was about 10 years old when I saw that in the theaters because it was very PG, still one of the most horrifying PG-rated horror movies I've seen. And um, that movie, you know, gave me nightmares. So there was kind of a love-hate thing with horror. I was sort of really afraid of it. 
but when I turned 14 or 13 or 14, I realized and I started doing research when I knew I wanted to be a director that most first-time filmmakers started with horror, whether it be Spielberg or Oliver Stone with The Hand and uh, Seizure and Francis Ford Coppola with Dementia 13. So I said, okay, because horror films were low budget, they didn't need big names in them. They didn't cost a lot of money, so a lot of times uh, producers would let a first-time filmmaker you know, cut his teeth with a horror film. So at that point, I started watching every horror film on video and seeing the rules of what you know you do with a horror film. And I saw a lot of really bad ones that were just jumping on the bandwagon, but the few films like John Carpenter's Halloween, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, you could see the filmmakers that were trying to actually do something with that versus the ones who were just you know, doing the, the cliches and the scares and things, which is basically what really inspired There's Nothing Out There. As when I was in high school, I had seen a lot of horror films at this point. I was like, why has nobody in a horror film ever watched a horror film? You know, these are the, it's all about teenagers that watch horror movies, and yet they always do the stupid things like go into the basement by themselves or stand in front of an open window or drop the knife. And so when I wrote There's Nothing Out There, which I wrote very fast, um, I just wanted to make fun of all the cliches with a character who was the audience. Um, and he would say and do all the things that the audience does when they watch these horror films. You know, don't go into the basement. Don't be stupid, you know. And that's that sounds that. very similar to Scream. Yes, <laughs> like, and, and uh, which you and, made before, Scream. which I made before. Yes, and that's the because I wrote the script in 1987, and we actually made the film in summer of '89, which was about six years before Scream in '96 came out. So um, that film has since turned into kind of my cult movie that people said has been sort of the inspiration of the one that inspired the Scream franchise. And there are connections to it with Kevin Williamson. And when he wa- wa- when he wrote his script, he was watching lots of uh, horror films late night on cable, which is exactly when There's Nothing Out There was playing on HBO and Cinemax. So I can't prove it, but yes, there's been discussions as well as even a documentary that a filmmaker in the UK made um, uh, who, who talks about like a nine-minute documentary called Copycat about the influences and the uh, structures between Scream and there's nothing out there, so I let people decide for themselves. I'm happy with Scream because Scream really brought the genre back. It was on a real lull for many years, and because of Scream, I was able to get back to horror and do movies like The Hazing and Nightmare Man and Jacqueline Hyde and some of that other stuff, and then now The Black Room, yeah. That's great. So... When you got your start in this, I mean, tell us about your training. Now, you told us about the schools that you went to, but explain to us, you were telling us about how when you were 13, 14, you picked up a video camera and you started making films or, you know, tell us about all the things that you did growing up when you were doing these things. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, well, I I got like I said, I got my video camera when I was like 13 and I started making home movies with friends in the neighborhood. Um, we do like little chase movies and things like that. And then... Finally, my first my first thing was something called breaking and entering, which I was really young. It was about a about a twenty minute short, and it was sort of a horror comedy little thing that I did with one friend. And we did everything ourselves. We were like operating the cameras, and we did we edited the whole thing in camera because at that point I didn't have a connection to an editing base. So we would do all the edits within the camera thing. So you roll the tape back, and then you'd start there, which was a great training thing. And growing up with my father as a film editor also helps a lot too. Plus. I wanted to be an actor for a short period of time, and I was taking courses on that, which is also great for a director or people in the film business because you get that side of the you, you know how to talk to actors and work with them. So mm-hmm. I started making these shorts. I did one called Undead, which was 52 minutes. And then when I was 16, I undertook my first like feature-length you know, home movie called Strength in Numbers, which was almost a two-hour action comedy epic that's uh, a little similar in a ways to Goonies. Um, it was, uh, came out around that time. Um, 
and at the same time, uh, my father got me into um, PA work, production assistant work, on some independent films in New York. So I worked on Troma's War before I started college and a low-budget slasher movie called Pose for Murder and um, a few films like that. So I was learning the, the training ground from working with independent New York films and doing my own home movies, which I would show to the people. And that was where I learned something very interesting in college. Because, I, as I said, I went to Hampshire College, which had a film department, but they were known for, um, you know, arty experimental or documentaries. And they hated anything Hollywood and commercial, except for Hitchcock, which I always said, okay, so you, you hate horror, but you love Hitchcock, and there's something weird there. So I was doing these short films on Super 8 when I had to sort of fight my way to get into the film course. And the teacher just dis dismissed the films when they saw my shorts. I did one called Just Listen, which is actually the film that plays in the beginning of There's Nothing Out There on the Monitor. Um, and he said to the class after it was over, well, that shows you how easy it is to do a horror film because it was effective <laughs> and it was like, okay. So I was getting like no respect from the from the academic community, but the independent producers and filmmakers that I was working with in the summers on the films thought they were great. And I was like, well, I want to make a, a career in this business. So it's it, I learned there's a big difference between the academic world and the professional world. And you were already sort of marketing yourself towards that way of going the horror route so you can get in. That was exactly it. Yeah, I wanted to get in. Because, I, I mean, comedy has always come naturally, and I like comedy. But, you know, I, I like to combine it with things. I mean, I and I, and I love Hitchcock. I mean, mm -hmm. I would love to Obviously, do films like North by Northwest, which combines comedy and suspense and romance and action and adventure. I mean, it's all in there when it works. So... Um, but horror was the way in, and um, you know now I've gone back and forth to horror many times over the years. But I hadn't done a horror film for ten years since um, Nightmare Man, and now I'm back again with with the Black Room and a few other horror projects. So, so what would you say your first big break was in this business? First big break. Well, it was definitely there's nothing out there. Um, it, that movie. Because when I made that film, I was making it for the horror community. And I wasn't making fun of the genre. I was making fun of the cliches and the conventions that they sort of do, like the cat scare that jumps out of nowhere. And I just thought there was a lot of lazy filmmaking going on. But I respected at that point horror films because I was going to all the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors and these conventions. And you really see that horror fans you know, are really supportive and they want to like your movie. You know, and they, But when you do stupid things, they yell at the screen and you know, they don't do that. So when I made the movie, I just wanted to appeal to them. And I was surprised because of the humor, how much the critics, you know, actually liked it. We got a, a pretty good review in the New York Times and Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And it actually just hit the, the right moment. But since we had no names in the movie, we didn't – the the public and the critics really liked it. But the agents and the studios didn't get it because they said, which I heard over the years, uh, John, Car John Landis had the same problem when he wrote The American World in London. And I hear the same thing on There's Nothing Out There. It's too funny to be scary. It's too scary to be funny. So what is it? If you're making a horror film, why are people laughing? You shouldn't laugh if it's a horror film. They're laughing at the film. No, they're laughing with the film. What do you mean they're laughing with the film? It's funny, but it's a horror film. Yes, and it's funny. And, you know, all the times, you know, <laughs> because everyone likes to, you know, pigeonhole you into that uh, that little thing. I've, I've, I've always said, actually, anyone who's really serious about film, there's a movie that I love called The Stuntman with Peter O'Toole and Steve Railsback. Richard Rush is the director. He made the movie, which is great, and uh, and then he made years later a documentary called The Sinister Saga, The Making of the Stuntman, and that documentary will tell you more about the film business and how it's changed and why ego has replaced greed, and so it's so hard to jockey positions nowadays with all that stuff, but it, it's a great history lesson, and it'll teach you more about the film business and you know, taking many courses about it in the schools. 
Now, you mentioned uh, Hitchcock being a major influence in your life and so forth. Can you tell us some of the other influences who you had growing up and also some of the influences you currently have? Sure. Um, well, Evil Dead, Sam Raimi, absolutely, because he was 22 years old. And when I saw that film, um, again, what he, with very little money, he had a lot of time. He spent lots and lots of time. But um, the creativity that he put onto that thing, you could really see how every shot and everything, he was trying so hard to make something that stood out. So that one was absolutely an influence. There were a few directors that I was following at the time. Um, Richard Franklin, who's an Australian director, and I think in general Australian films are beautifully shot movies. So some of that, I don't know why, but the DPs and the way they shoot them. But he had done a movie called Patrick and Road Games and then Psycho 2, which coming from Psycho is it's still, in my, in my opinion, one of the best sequels to a film that like you can't make a sequel to, and yet they did, and pulled it off, and made, made well done. And because of that, Tom Holland, who had written Psycho 2, I followed him, so when he made his directing debut with Fright Night, the original one, um, in 85, I, was, I saw it to see that, and I was blown away, and that is one of the best comedy horror things as well. And I actually got to talk to him once, and you know, he said that when you know, uh, if you ever seen the movie, Peter Vincent, Peter uh, and Rodney McDowell is uh, going to the house. He's saying, "I am Peter Vincent, vampire killer. I am Peter Vincent." He's trying to convince himself, which is Lucas Della saying, "I must be brave. I must be strong." From having to meet Frankenstein. So again, the influences are there, <laughs> and um, you know, so I, I love that film. Uh, Joseph Rubin's another guy who who did a movie called Dreamscape, and then the, and then Stepfather, the original, which is still beautifully done film, and had a lot of inspiration into the black room I took from Stepfather. Um, so there were a few, like, the smaller films, but Steven Spielberg was major, as most <laughs> filmmakers' influence on me, and uh, I really kind of had my own personal... I wanted to... Once I knew I really wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to either tie or beat um, Mr. Spielberg when he had done his first professional thing, and he had been, like, 21 when he got his Night Gallery episode with Joan Crawford. And uh, so when I did There's Nothing Out There, I was 20 years old and I was able to sort of, you know, I've been so tunnel vision and pushing so I was able to do my first feature at that point, you know. So um, he was absolutely big. So those are some of the bigger and smaller filmmakers. But Scorsese, After Hours, I love. And uh, there's a huge laundry list. Robert Wise, you go back to the classics. And, of course, I love Howard Hawks and um, His Girl Friday, um, you know, uh, I, I show actors It's a Mad Men, Mad Men World by Stanley Kramer all the time as one of the best common, of comedy and actors paying attention to other actors. And, you know, so the list, the list goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're directing a film, let's talk about this for a second. Um, what are the steps that you do in preparation for shooting that day? Well, I'm a huge believer in pre-production. I mean, this is, especially in the low-budget independent world, um, it's hard to find the money. And when they do, a lot of times they just tend to uh, jump into production. You know, they're like, we have the money, let's spend it right now. But I think if you plan it properly, because the cheapest time is during prep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then production costs money. But if you don't prep it properly, you run into problems during production, and then you try to fix it during post-production, and that's where things cost a fortune with CGI and all this other kind of stuff. So I've always done, like, detailed uh, shot uh, storyboard uh, storyboards if I have the right artist, but shot lists. I do shot lists for every shot I know going into the film. I did that for my first movie. When I first started, I was doing video storyboarding where I'd get a video camera and I'd shoot almost the entire film on video with the actors. If you had rehearsal time, I had three weeks of, of rehearsal with There's Nothing Out There, which was great. And if you even talk to other, when you see interviews or talking about films, whenever they had the rehearsal period, the actors, it's just you, you can build a family, you get the relationships, it helps so much. So um, and just how, really planning it all. And how many weeks do you get total 
typically for a film for pre-production? Typically? <laughs> well, typically <laughs> now you don't get anything. Um, time and time again, I've been always said that the, the producers say, well, you know, we can't afford to pay uh, for pre-production, so you're not going to have the actors. Well, most of the time, 99% of the time, actors will love to rehearse, and they'll do it on their spare time and meet with you even if they're not getting paid for it. You know, I mean, on the big studio levels, that's something else, you know, if you're working with big movie stars. But, um, you know, actors want to do a good job. If they're there to do it for the actual art and the work versus just a paycheck, they want to perform. And they love working with the director. So um, you get as much, take as much time as you can. But it, it's, it's gotten harder and harder over the years because of the way the film's put together and, you know, people are coming and going so fast that, you know, to get people organized and then together into groups. The movie I'm about to do now, I'm shooting one in Vegas <coughs> called Party Bus to Hell next month. And uh, half the cast is from L.A. and half the cast is from Vegas. So I'm meeting separately with the different people because it's hard to get everyone rounded up in one group. How much pre-production time would you like to have for a film? I would like to have at least a month. I mean, if you have a good, decent month to prep it. I mean, if you have an effects-heavy movie, special effects might need more time with molds and everything like that, so you have to give them the time. Just you have, to, you, have to, you have to find good people for the heads of each department, and then you rely on them and their judgments to kind of help you and how much time they need to build sets or do whatever they need to do so you're not rushing. Because you, that's why you hire people. You, know, you hire good people, and you let them do their job, you know, so... And how do you like to work with the actors? If you're asking them to do something for specific scenes, how do you talk to them and direct them? Well, I love working with actors. I mean, when you're a writer and a director, you you write the script, you you see it, and you have it in your head, but it comes to life when it's on screen, you know. And I've always felt, you know, it's important, but it is a blueprint, and it comes to life. So I want the actors to kind of add their own personalities and sensibilities in there to, to work that. A lot of times especially if you're dealing with first-time actors, um, you know, they get uh, very tunnel vision to their own character, and it's hard to see the whole picture. So I've done sometimes when I've had time exercises where you make the actors play other roles, which forces them to see through the eyes of the other characters rather than just get so stuck in their head of who they are. And that helps open it up to see, like, you know, some because, of course, acting is reacting, and sometimes, you know, it's not what you say but how you react to something, and that's what you're playing on. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure they're aware of that, that they're always in the moment of the scene, not just in their heads about trying to remember what their next line is or, you know, what their motivation is necessarily. And what do you do if, for example, you're on set and you didn't get the chance to work with this actor, or maybe you did, but on set they just refuse to do it the way that you want them to? How do you work with them if, if they're being difficult? Every actor is different. Um, everyone takes different little things. You, you have to find what works for certain people. Like I found that some actors, their first takes are their best ones, and other ones get better as they go. So if you know who you're dealing with, you start with the, the coverage on the actors uh, who, who, need, who, who don't need the takes, so they're off-camera saying it, so by the time you get to them, they're up to, par, up to speed. You know, that happened on a movie called Tomorrow by Midnight, which was six people in a video store and it was a real dialogue. It was like a breakfast club with guns kind of movie. And um, the actors, it was all an actor's film. It was almost like a play. So we did have rehearsal on that. And then it was just a matter of, of coaching and working the actors in there. Sometimes some manipulation. Um, I remember when I worked with Carol Kane in that movie and there was a scene where she's supposed to get very emotional um, because she's sad that it's about to happen and I remember she had done uh, Dog Day Afternoon that was one of her first films and I reminded her of the scene where they kill uh, Al Pacino's uh, partner in that and that memory brought back and she thanked me because that triggered the memory of the tears and she was able to get to where she needed to be so you, you need to find where it is um, again going to the stuntman that documentary where they're talking to Peter O'Toole about actor manipulation and you know, in that movie, Peter O'Toole is a director who does a lot of 
underhanded things to get the performance out of the actors that some may think are ethical and some may not think are ethical. You know, the famous uh, myth of Hitchcock with the psycho scene, you know, suddenly turned the water into ice cold water when Janet Lee was supposed to scream. So it was real screams when, you know, the shower sequence and things like that. So um, some actors do not appreciate that at all. And, uh, you know, the ones, if they get the right performance, or, you know, they, 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 they're happy you did that. So you just have to find the actor and find what the line is and, and the trust. They have to trust. Everyone has to trust each other. If they, you don't build up the actor's trust, then you have a big problem. So you really need to make sure they trust you and that, they, that you know that they're going to look good so they can feel free to do what they want to do and not that they're making a mistake. Have you always had the opportunity to have complete control on your projects or have you ever had a situation where producers <laughs> had to come in or wanted to come in and make changes on the fly? Or I've had many situations where producers, well, it's always, you know, uh, film business, the film and the business, you know. Um, you're trying to do the best job. The producers, you know, if you're a good producer, everything's going well, you step away and you just let it go together. But um, I've, I've nicely tricked a lot of people into thinking they're making one kind of movie when they're making something else. My sense of humor that comes through on everything, people don't necessarily always get when they read the scripts. It's there very strongly, but they don't see how funny it is until later. Um, there was one producer on a movie that uh, the only time I really had gotten upset uh, with him was we were doing a scene with an actor and it was a big monologue scene in front of a, a fire and uh, I, it was, I didn't want it to be, um, you know, seem too rehearsed so I told the actor after we did the take to mix it up a little bit. You know, you play around with it, don't worry about the lines, you, know, you can add some stuff. So he did and the producer who came from television and in television it's a whole different world because the script is God and you don't change a word of it. But um, when he heard the actor going off, he was like, we can't do that. He can't, you know, he's like, he's got to stop that. He said, you know, we can't. And I said, I'm like, we're getting coverage. We can cut around the thing. But he, the actor heard him. So he kind of like stopped and he just did it very straight. And then he, then the producer says, well, the, the performance was a little flat. Can you get it? To, you know, I said, no, you just screwed up his whole performance because, you know, you didn't give him the freedom. I said, you know, we're not broadcasting this to, you know, six million homes tomorrow morning like television. So, you, you know, you can edit this thing. So <laughs> that's the time when you just have to be careful. And you, you always want to protect your actors. You, you want, no matter what's happening behind the scenes with either money or, or budget or, or schedule or time, it's not the, it's not the actor worry. They should just concentrate on their performance so you keep all of that away from the actors. That's you, you got to protect the actors because if you every movie no matter how slick and how beautifully shot it is and how watered down the streets are the blue moonlight and all that kind of stuff if you don't care about the people you don't care about the movie. So you know it's always comes down to the to the characters of the film which is why they're so important. And what do you do if the actors turn against you or they do things in that regard? I've never had that luckily as far as I can tell I've had some issues sometimes with actresses little diva qualities in there <laughs> where they don't treat it too seriously enough and that gets it's like okay, even if the actors are not top of their game or, you know, they're trying but they're a little, you know, wet behind the ears as long as they're giving their 100%. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, I, James Cameron is infamous for that. You know, he wants 100% and, he, you know, he's, he's you know, Titanic, the story, so, you know. But if the actor is, like, not treating it seriously or, you know, I had one actress in a movie who, you know, she was, you know, she had her managers and her agents and she was getting flowers and and one night, you know, she had a uh, a party for her boyfriend who was an actor and she stayed up really late. And the next day on the set, she was exhausted and that, you know, was not fair to the other actors. And I wasn't happy about that. And then the one time I laid into her was 
we were doing a sequence and she said, you got to get me out early, you got to get me out early because um, her, her boyfriend actor had a he had a small part in the movie and there was a premiere and she didn't want to miss the premiere. And she's starring in this like pretty good independent film. This was a decent movie. And all day long she was driving everyone crazy about getting her out early. So I shot her coverage first and I got her out early and she was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I said, well, you've done your hobby long enough. You can go now. And she's like, my hobby? I said, that's the way you're treating it. <laughs> and she did not appreciate that, but everyone, the cast and crew were like, yeah, <laughs> you know, because I just like, look, you know, take it seriously. This is a, this is a job. This is, a, you know, your career, if, you know, if you're serious. You know. <laughs> Very good. And how do you, when you're doing the writing process, have you had the situation where they've had you do a ton of rewrites and, and things along those lines? And Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that comes with the territory. You know, they all say writing is rewriting, you know, so um, not, not one script ever goes from the first draft into production. And if it does, it's probably a mistake. Um, <laughs> you're a bit rushed too fast. But no, um, lots of rewrites. Uh, things happen all the time. You, you basically have to be ready for problems. I had a producer um, who I worked with many, many years who his first thing to me was saying, because these were pretty low budget movies we were doing, he goes, make sure you have plan A, B, C, and D ready and be prepared to use E. And that's always been a good thing because something will happen there. And with scripts, same thing. You'll have an actor, something doesn't turn out or you have to rewrite things. I've had you know, when you're dealing with television, I've written a bunch of uh, lifetime thrillers as well. Um, they have very strict rules about what they want or don't want. And uh, one of the most horrific notes I got, um, and I, I, this is the thing, I tend to write personally a lot of female-driven movies, and I like strong female characters. You know, even in the horror genre, I don't just write, you know, there's the exploitation element, of course, but I tend to write stronger females. And I got notes, and this is Lifetime, Lifetime Thriller, you know, and they said my lead character was too uh, self-empowered and independent to be likable. And I'm like, really? So, you know, they want like the goody-goody, innocent, wholesome, totally, you know, naive girl who then has to, you know, become strong by the end to, you know, beat the odds. But I was like, come on, girls, see, this was a college thing. I'm like, you know, the girls are independent. They have a, a mouth. You know, they, they're not just going to take it. And I wanted to give her a little attitude. So I had to fight and tailor things around there. So. Okay. And where can we see your work at? Um, oh, my work, it's, um, you can find some of it on, uh, on, online, on, on different, uh, different resources, Amazon, of course, and you can buy things there. And Do you have a website? That I, you... I have a personal website, uh, Um There's a website for the new movie, theblackroommovie.com, and that's coming out. Um, it's opening up, actually, at the First Glance Film Festival in L.A. on April 21st. And then it opens theatrically on the 28th at the uh, Lemley Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills, playing for a week down there. And we got a great cast. We got Natasha Henstridge, Lynn Shea, uh, Augie Duke, Tiffany Shepes, James Duvall, Dominique Swang, Luke, Lucas Hassel. Three of my actors were just nominated, uh, two of my actors in the movie for uh, Best uh, best Actors for um, the, uh, the First Glance Film Festival. So I'm very excited about that one. And you can see the trailer on YouTube if you type in The Black Room. It's yes. really, it looks really good and exciting. Yeah, you can find trailers on most of my films online and stuff like that. Some of my films are kind of tricky to find, but if you hunt them, you can, you can find them. Great. Well, Rolf, thank you very much for being here today, sharing your work with us. And again, go to his website at www.rolfkanefsky.com and also be sure to check out The Black Room. It looks really exciting. You've been listening to The Creative Arts Business. I'm Brian Metcalf for kpcradio.com. Thank you very much for being here, Rolf. Thanks for having me. Okay, get it.